Take your Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra 3, um, beginning with verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a, a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Kadamiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God. And this is what they sang. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish between the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with great shouts, and the sound was heard far away. Amen. That sends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we, we thank you so much as we come this morning that we have the Word of God. Lord, as we have been praying for the, the church around the world, the one thing that has struck me in all the requests, no matter what the country is, is to pray that they may have the Word of God. Lord, we have it in abundance um, and then more. But Lord, we, that doesn't mean that just because we have it, we listen to it. It doesn't mean we rightly handle it. And, and I pray this morning that your word might be handled rightly. I pray, Lord, that we as your people may listen to your voice as you speak to us today through your word. God, we pray. Lord, that your word would accomplish its purpose in our lives. Lord, to make us like Jesus Christ and to bring glory to your name. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Well, 
in your bulletin, you have on the back of the song sheet uh, uh, an, um, a chronolog, uh, a timeline, basically, of the events of Ezra. Um, I want to encourage you to hang on to this over the next several weeks. So stick it in your Bible. Hopefully you don't have a Bible where everything goes in the Bible and you may never find it again. But, you know, hopefully, just stick it in your Bible and we'll pull this out from time to time to look at it. And if you're like, well, Pastor Rick, I use my phone. Well, then take a picture of it, you know, and, and keep it. But, you know, I think it could be something that could help. Especially as we get into the next several chapters, things get a little confusing on the, the timeline and stuff. And, and it may be helpful to, to go back and, and to refer to that uh, time and time again. Well, as we look at our text today in Ezra chapter 3, um, let me just say this. Uh, I to ask you this question. Have you guys ever eaten a pizza and you, you're eating pizza and you're just so full, you just think, I can't eat another bite. And you open the box and guess what? There's one piece. Now, does that cause a dilemma for anybody else or is it just me? <laughs> you know, you're like, you're so full, you're thinking, I just can't eat another bite. But yet at the same time, you're thinking, well, one piece of pizza is not going to be satisfying tomorrow for lunch. So what do I do? You know, well, I, if, if that, if you've ever experienced that, then you know the dilemma that I've had with Ezra chapter 3 over these last couple of weeks. We've already looked at most of the pizza, you know, but there's just a little bit left. And, you know, I could have crammed it down your throats all last week, but I chose to save that one piece of pizza for the, today. So it may not be quite as, as full and rich as, as what it was last week, but still, it's the Word of God, and we get a chance to, to look at it and, and see what it, it has to say. But let me do recap just a little bit because I want to make some clarifications on things that I said last week. You know, as we talked last week, we talked about worship. And we talked about, first of all, the priority of worship. I mean, these exiles had been set free. Cyrus uh, said, you could go home. And, and not only that, but God had begun to, to work in the hearts of these particular people, 40,000, 50,000 people, who were stirred to go back to Jerusalem for a work that God had them to do. And here they are returning from the land that they have lived, some of them their whole lives, out of consequences for the rebellion of their sin or the sin of their parents and, and their grandparents. And, and now they're being set apart by God to do this work of rebuilding the temple. And of course they come back as a much humbled people, as a people wanting to be right with God. And they get to Jerusalem... And, and Jerusalem has no walls. And what that means is, you know, we don't have cities with walls. So we're like, okay, so what? They don't have walls. But that meant they have no protection from people who would want to come and, and attack. And so they were very vulnerable to attacks and raids from the people of the land. Like we said last week, from the Moabites and the Edomites and all the other ites that you read about in the Bible, right? And, and these other nations don't want the walls to be rebuilt. Because they want to attack the people in Jerusalem. They want to be able to get to them and to disrupt their lives and sort of use them for their own purposes. And if you're, if you're a person who has ever lived in a, a not-so-nice part of town, you might understand a little bit what the Israelites are like. I've lived in places like that, you know, where there's a, there's a lot of vulnerability and there's at least a little bit, if not much more, fear in your life of the fact that you could be harmed and stuff like that. So that's that's how they were uh, feeling that way. So what do they do? You know, well, they, you know, to, do they build secure homes to make sure they're safe? Do they 
Do they work on their economy to maybe make sure that that gets up and going so that they can have the security that, that they need? I mean, you know, these nations around them knew that Israel at one time used to be a mighty nation, and they didn't want them to become that way again. And so maybe they should focus their efforts on guarding and protecting the city so that they could do the work the Lord has given them to do. But that's not what they did. They laid aside all the things that made sense to do in their own minds, and they did what the Lord said. And that was to worship. That was to worship. And so they began by building the altar. Now, it makes sense that they built the altar because the altar represented a sense of repentance, a sense of coming before the Lord and wanting to be right with the Lord, but knowing that we are not a holy people, just like we talked about from uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, we, we will never do what the Lord uh, tells us to do, uh, but yet He, in our standing before Him, makes us as if we had not sinned. And so they knew that they needed the sacrifice, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so they built this altar. And, and there was a sense of them dedicating themselves, of consecrating and submitting themselves to the Lord. It was definitely a place of worship. You know, a lot like Abraham, or Abram, when he first came into the Promised Land, uh, about a thousand years before this. Uh, if you, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, Genesis 12, verse 7, uh, the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said to Abram this, he goes, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so what did Abram do? Well, the text tells us, so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. You know, Abram worshipped Yahweh by building an altar to him. And so we talked about the priority of worship last week. And then we talked about the regulation of worship. Okay, and uh, really what we were meant by that was we were to worship God according to his word, according to the way that he's laid out worship. Now, that was a fine heading for a point, but this week as I was listening to things and reading and stuff, I actually found a better way to put that. And I wish I would have saw that last week so I could have shared it with you. But, but that is, uh, one guy, he made the point, he said, actually this is the beauty of worship. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's actually very true. And, you know, because when we think in, in our day and time in which we live, when we hear the regulation of worship, you know, we, we live in a day and a time where people don't like to be told what to do, right? And so when you're saying that this is how God regulates worship or these are the rules that God gives us for worship, we view restraint. We don't see it as something beautiful. We see it as something that's like, you're keeping me from doing what I want to do. And yet... Brothers and sisters, when God gives us his regulations for worship, when he tells us, guys, this is how I want to be worshipped. This is what I delight in. This is what brings me joy. And he tells us that. Then we can come with great confidence. And not only that, but we can come with a sense of delight and joy ourselves that what we're doing here this morning brings God pleasure. But too often when we come, when people come to worship, they come out of a sense of self-centeredness. Sort of reminds me when I was a little kid, and you know, sometimes you, you would uh, you have a sibling that would have a birthday, and so if my sister had a birthday, um, you know, we'd go to the store with my mom, and she'd help us pick out a gift for my sister for her birthday. And so of course I wanted to get her a, something like a machine gun or a toy truck or you know <laughs> something like that. 
And my mom would say to me, Rick, it's not about you. You know, you need to get your sister something she would want. You know, like a Barbie doll or something like that. Yeah, you know, for a little boy, it just didn't make sense. Why would you spend money on that? You know, a machine gun would make so much more sense. You know, but, you know, it's not about you, Rick. It's about your sister. And you know what, brothers and sisters, if we could get that in our heads, that worship is not about us, it's about God, it would be so much better. And, and the beauty is, is God has told us what that is. So worship is beautiful when we really take ourselves and our own desires out of that worship and, and out of the picture and instead focus on God. You know, and, and in that, that's when we find our true delight. And then, of course, the last point we talked about last week was what I just said, the focus of worship, which is God. And so, so now we're, we're going to look at the building of the temple in verses 7 through 13. And verse 6 is sort of a, a transition verse, you know. Uh, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Well, see, that's what they were called to do, to go and to, to work on the temple and to build that temple. Um, so, yes, it's good that they're worshiping the Lord, but the work has not been done that God has given them to do. And the temple also, whereas the altar signified that forgiveness of sins and being made right in with God, the temple as, as a whole uh, signified the presence of God with his people. The presence of God with his people. It also signified the providence of God and the reality that something significant was happening, that God was dwelling with his people, that you would be our God and we would be your people. And so I want us to look at this today, and, and actually my outline is very simple. We only have one piece of pizza, so it's very simple. Um, you know, there's really two points to the outline. First of all, we're going to look at the continuity with the past, the continuity with the past as we look at the building of the temple. And the second thing we're going to look at is the discontinuity with the past. So the continuity with the past and the discontinuity with the past. In other words, there are parallels in this passage of the first temple, Solomon's temple, and then this current temple, the second temple, that's being built by the exiles. And so we're going to look at how they're the same, kids. That's what we mean by continuity, kids, is how they're the same. Okay, well, look at verse 7. Uh, look at the gathering of the necessary materials that, that they have. Uh, we read, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, uh, this is really, if you know your Old Testament, uh, this is actually, you go, whoa, this is amazing. This is just like what it was when Solomon built the temple. Turn back, if you would, to Second Chronicles chapter 2. Not too far back, just one book back. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Now, I'm not going to read that whole text to you, but I want you to have it open before you. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And I want us just to glance down through and see the similarities uh, that we see here. You know, first of all, in verse 1, we see that this is Solomon. He's building the temple, right? 
He's, his, his father David had been preparing to build the temple even though he didn't have permission to build the temple. He knew that Solomon would be the one to do it. David would sometimes you know, try to get things ready for his son. Don't we do that for, as parents? But anyway, but Solomon is now ready to build the temple. And so he's making things happen. So what does he do? Well, look at verse 3. He sends word to Hiram, the king of Tyre. So he actually gets his supplies from the same place that the exiles are getting their supplies from. And actually, we won't take the time to turn there, but if you want to write down 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 6, 1 Kings 5, verse 6, uh, you'll see also that it, that account includes the Sidonians as well. That um, is where they get the, the materials. Um, but then in verse 8 of 2 Chronicles 2, we see that, that Solomon requested cedar trees. Um, and then in verse 10, you, you look and you see that, that he paid the workers. And, um, you know, the exiles here are paying the workers with what? With money, right? That's what we see. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, but to the uh, workers that are in Tyre and Sidonian, they, they are giving uh, food and drink and oil in, in the same way that Solomon did. And not only that, but the details are incredible, even to the point that in 2 Chronicles 2, verse 16, that Solomon had them send the cedars to Joppa via the sea. And that's exactly the same thing that the exiles did as well. So, so we see that similarity. Then um, look at verse 8. We, we see more similarities. The, the date in which the temple was, was started and even the Levite supervision, uh, supervision. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. By the way, let me just point this out. If you notice in this text, everyone who came from exile was participating in the building of the temple. It wasn't just that that was the leader's responsibility and the people came along just for moral support or whatever. Everybody had a part in the work of the temple. You know, God, when he puts his church together, you know, he gives us uh, things to do. He gives us a calling that we are to fulfill uh, amongst his people. And that's what we see here. Anyway, let me read on. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Now, a couple of things I want you to see is that, that, they, that Solomon started the temple in the second month. Okay, If you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 3, this time, 2 Chronicles 3, verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. And so we see here that actually we're, when the exiles begin to build the temple is at the exact same time the Solomon did as well. Now that second month was like the prime time to begin building projects. The first month being the day of atonement or the month of atonement and stuff. But 
uh, in the second month, the weather was, was right, and so oftentimes building projects started at that time. But, but not only the date, but also then you see the supervision of the Levites. Um, we read to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Now that's phraseology that's very similar to what David used in 1 Chronicles 23.4, where David is making the arrangements for building the first temple, and he appoints the Levites to have charge of the work in the house of the Lord. And so here again, the Levites are, are involved in that. Now, uh, verses 10 and 11, another similarity. Uh, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with the cymbals to the praise of the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsive, responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now, it's interesting that when you look at this account of, of the, the foundation being laid, the focus is not so much on the foundation, right? The, founda or the, the focus is really more on the religious celebration as the temple work is being started. And the description, once again, sort of brings to mind what Solomon did. If you want to look at Second Chronicles chapter 5, I probably should have just told you, just keep your finger in Second Chronicles, but Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, uh, this is, there is, a, there is a difference here between the exiles and Solomon. Solomon has just completed the temple. And so he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, and they're celebrating uh, the exiles are celebrating just because the foundation is, is laid, okay? But this is what we read in Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 11 and 13. And, and when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Judith, Judithum, their sons and kinsmen arrayed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeteers and it was the duty of the trumpeteers and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord and when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud. And so we see in the same way as, as the people in Solomon's day, you know, worshipped and praised the Lord uh, for his covenant faithfulness, for his hatsid. That's what it means in in verse uh, 13 where it says for he is good for his steadfast love that's his covenant faithfulness endures forever they worship the Lord for that and they give praise and thanksgiving and in the same way here are these exiles as the foundation has been laid are rejoicing and giving thanks to God and that that uh, song I think it's written that way in the ESV it sort of said it uh, set aside as a, a fragment of, of a psalm 
It's actually a quote that occurs multiple times in the Psalter. In Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Uh, Psalm 106, 1. 107, 1. 118, 1. And 136, 1. We were going to try to sing 136, 1 in our worship service today, but the tune was just beyond us as a congregation. <laughs> so you can go back and you can read it instead. How's that? Uh, but still, and, and what... You know, I think if nothing else, the writer of Hebrews, as we look at all these ways in which the, the temple that the exiles were preparing to build, uh, the way that it was similar to Solomon's, I think what, if nothing else, the writer wishes to emphasize that despite the exile and despite the fact that physically the second temple was not the same as the first, yet from the, the point of view of forms of worship, nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. The worship was the same before the exile and after the exile. But there's another sense in which I want us to see this morning as we think about this continuity is that it really is pointing to God's covenant promises and the fact that God is, is working redemptively through His people. And this, this is really important for us to remember, brothers and sisters, uh, as, a, as a church. Sometimes we can get so uh, tunnel-focused that we're just concerned about what Kirk of the Plains is doing. Or, or maybe we're, we're a little broader than that. We think about what the churches are doing in the PCA or in our presbytery and then in our PCA. Or, or maybe if we're really broad, then we're thinking about the churches of other denominations in our community. And we might think, but I want us to see that God is working uh, through His covenant promises throughout history. That the church is part of the flow of the work that God is doing throughout history. And that's what we are a part of. And so the things that we are involved in, the work that we do, the worship that we do, the witness that we do, all these things are a, a part of the work of God that He is doing to bring glory to Himself and to build up His church. Now, isn't that a much different perspective than, hmm, I wonder what programs we ought to do here at Kirk of the Plains. You know, we ought to be looking for the mighty hand of God to be at work in our midst. Uh, this may not sound related, but it is somewhat related. I heard somebody this week talking about genealogies. And they said, you know, as, as New Testament Christians, you know, we, we don't really care much for genealogies. We can't pronounce half the names. We don't know who the people are. And, you know, anyway, let's just skip those parts. So we, we oftentimes skip the genealogies. But this was somebody who was well-versed in the Old Testament. And they made the point, they said, but maintaining a record, uh, the genealogies were really maintaining a record of God's faithfulness to his promises throughout the ages. What it told the Jew was, God was faithful to this generation, and then this generation came next, and God was faithful to them. And this generation came next, and God was faithful to them. And you see God's work throughout time. And the reason why that's so important, because as we see God's faithfulness in the past, we do so in hope that He will be faithful to His promises in the future. Right? And so where we stand, right where we are in our life and the things that we go through, it just reminds us that God will be faithful. So that continuity is very important. Now, the second thing I want us to see is the discontinuity. 
in verses 12 and 13. But many of the priests and the Levites and the, the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who have seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and sound was heard uh, far away. And so here the people, they're, they're worshiping the Lord, they're praising God for, for what He has done, and for His covenant faithfulness. You're talking about forty or 50,000 people here. In, in sort of the temple precinct, and they're, they're worshiping the Lord. Now, the temple's not been built. We're just talking about these people are getting excited about a foundation, you know. But still, that's, that's, uh, that's great as they see God at work. And, and there's so much noise that they really can't even distinguish the rejoicing from the weeping sound. But you can understand those people who are joyful. Um, these are the people who had not seen the first temple. Um, they... They were just excited because they knew that they owed their well-being to God. God had preserved them as his people. He had safely returned them. He had given them this work by his grace. And they were so joyful and thankful for that. So that makes sense why there was great joy. But also there was great mourning. And you may think, well, why is there mourning? Well, these are the people who had seen the temple. These are the old guys like me, right, who had lived in Jerusalem who had seen Solomon's temple and they looked and they're like oh my goodness this is just a shadow of the glory of what the old temple looked like and uh, so you can understand their mourning but you know what eventually this spirit of nostalgia uh, discouraged and drained the energy from those who were enthusiastic about the rebuilding project and the work on the temple stopped, and it wasn't completed for many years. Now, I want you to understand, it's not just because of the nostalgia, okay, that, that the work stopped. There were also, as we saw in verse 3 of this chapter, and as we're going to see in chapter 4, that there were these surrounding nations that were opposing the Israelites and did not want them to rebuild the temple. Okay, so there, that was another reason. But look over at Haggai, if you would. The prophet Haggai, um, he's, his prophecy fulfilled about, I mean, it was, it covered about four months of time, but most likely Haggai was there at this foundation lane, and, um, but now he prophesies 17 years later, okay, and, and the foundation is still there. There's not really been any more work done on the temple, and in Haggai chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, Haggai says this, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jeho Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. 
So here they are, 17 years later, there's been such discouragement, such opposition, as we're going to talk about when we get to chapter 4, that the people just sort of gave up on the work. They, they turned their attention to, to, to other things, which we'll talk about more in the future. But they just sort of gave up. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, is when observations of the glory of the past are over-exaggerated, when, when old-timers like us sort of look at the past and we sort of lift it up and exalt it as something that's great, especially when there's, not, when there's selective recall, right? When we only focus on the things that we want to focus on, it could be debilitating. It could be very discouraging. And, and it's so easy to think, you know, if I was only alive during the days of Jesus, you know, I would be a more zealous believer. Or it, it might be easy for us to think, if only I had been around in the early church, in the book of Acts, my faith would be on fire. I would be just like telling everybody about Jesus. And, and we might even criticize the church today and say, why can't the church today be like the early church? Because we can just, it's so easy to look at the past and glamorize that. But the Holy Spirit is still with us. And that's what Haggai tells, tells the people. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It's easier to glamorize the past than to be enthusiastic about the present. And it wasn't just Haggai, but a contemporary of Haggai, another prophet by the name of Zechariah, he speaks to this as well. Turn, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 5. Zechariah 4, verse 5. Zechariah says, Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of Grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things, small things like the foundation of the temple, was a small thing in the eyes of those who had beheld the glory of Solomon. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You see, to, to get up, caught up in, in the past and, and, and to see what God, and not to see, excuse me, what God is doing now, at one level, it shows our disregard for what God is currently doing. You know, here again, to remind ourselves that we are part of that line, that stream of redemptive history that God is carrying out for His glory and the building up of His kingdom. And and sometimes when we get so focused on the past that we don't want to focus on the current, it's to forget what God is currently doing. It's also a spirit of ingratitude that is unable to count the blessings of what God is doing in our midst, even though it seems like the things that God is doing is very small in our midst. 
And you know, not every day is a day of lavish provision. E even on days when we have nothing but bread and water, these are precious gifts from God. Even lean times can be a blessing too. I know at Kirk of the Plains, uh, not too long ago, uh, it was uh, the way the dynamics of our church seemed to work was this, that you know we had a good core group of people and the Lord was adding to our number and just as he would add to our numbers and he would take somebody else away. Somebody would move out of state or they'd get transferred in the military somewhere else and the Lord would bring somebody else and then somebody else would get transferred away. And I remember people coming to me and saying, Pastor Rick, I'm not complaining, but Lord, why? You know, and it can feel like that in those times of small things. You can think, Lord, what are you doing? But you know, in those times, maybe the Lord didn't build our numbers greatly, but the Lord was growing people spiritually. I saw it as people were learning to lead, as they were growing in their hunger for the Lord and stuff. And even in those times, God is at work. And maybe you've gone through those times in the past in your life. And as you look back at those times, those lean times, those trials, you know, uh, maybe the Lord has used that in your life. You may not want to go through those things again, but, you know, the Lord used that in your life. But maybe you're here today, and you're going through that right now, and God is desirous to teach you to trust Him. You know, often our observation of what God is doing is distorted. We oftentimes sort of exaggerate and exalt the past, and we undervalue the present blessings that God has given to us. Because they're not in line with what we think we want. And when God is giving us the best. And so at its base lies an inability to trace the providence of God in His daily provision for His people. And God is doing that. So it's far better um, to remind ourselves of the blessings of the gospel and our union with Christ and to join with those who express exuberant joy for what God is doing in our lives. If I could have you turn one more time to Haggai chapter 2, Haggai 2 uh, verses 4 through 9. I want to read the passage after the one I read earlier. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoiadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. You notice that theme over and over? My spirit remains with you. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Did you hear that? The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, what Haggai was actually doing was he was prophesying and pointing to the, the exiles to what comes ahead, to the glories of the one who is greater than the temple, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the one who alone secures the peace between 
a holy God and sinners. And that's where we live today, brothers and sisters. That's where we live today. We, we get to experience that and we get to, to rejoice in that. Uh, even though we may at times feel like we live in times of small things, God is great that He indwells His people. We don't go to the temple, we are the temple. And not only that, but then that even points us ahead further to, to the time when we will close our eyelids in death and we will open our eyes and be in glory with our God to worship Him. To be in the true temple. To be once again face to face with our God. Just like he was with Adam and Eve in the garden. To know that that is our end. And so brothers and sisters, our churches are small. They're unimpressive. Not very influential. But God's purposes are being accomplished. Being carried out by God's people and God's place for his glory. So no matter what seems insignificant in the church today, is, is God's will being carried out by God's people according with God's instructions as, the, as they follow His Word. So rather than being discouraged by this, we need to take heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, the verse you're very familiar with, with, says, But God chose that which is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. If the world looked at you, they would see you as weak. They would see you as out of step with the agenda of the world. But then Paul goes on in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 1, and he talks about how God uses the weak things of the world to carry out his missions. He goes, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to, to bring to nothing things that are. God is using His church, brothers and sisters. You know, the, a slogan that we've had at Kirk of the Plains from the very beginning is, we are a church for our day with roots in the past. Uh, we exist because God is faithful to His covenant promises. And the things that we do today, we don't do in response to our culture. We do it as part of that flow of God's redemptive work. And so we are tied to His covenant promises. So let us not despise the little things, whether that be in our lives, whether that be in our church, wherever that may be, but stand on His promises even when circumstances say otherwise. Let's bow our heads and meditate on God's Word and respond to Him appropriately in silent prayer. Yahweh, our covenant God, we come before you today 
uh, just to give praise to you. What an encouraging message, Lord, to know that you are still at work in your church. Forgive us, Father, as we think so small. Forgive us, God, as, as we have the temptation as these older Israelites did to, to weep when they saw the, the laying of the foundation, forgetting that God was at work and still seeking to do mighty and great things. And Lord, it's no different in our day and time. And so we might look at our country and, and see the things that are going on and, and see what month this is and what the world celebrates this month. And we may get so discouraged, oh God, but your kingdom comes. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us not, God, draw back, but let us move forward in the might and the power of our God to do his will and to serve him. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would embolden us, Lord, not to, to go out and to do, just try to do something spectacular for you, but, Lord, just to be faithful. Just to be faithful, God, in the small things that you give us to do. Knowing, Lord, that you are doing mighty things for your glory. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.